Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Jumping into our new series here, as we, as we kind of focus on what we should talk about, we felt like God wanted us to do a series uh, focusing on some core relationship issues. And once we got that, we uh, did some research that led us to a, a series that Seacoast did that gave us kind of the concept and outline. So I want to give them some credit for giving us the concept and outline for this. Today we're call, starting a series called Where is the Love? Uh, almost every week I'm in a conversation uh, m- more than once often with people who are mourning or bemoaning the polarization of relationships in our culture. How people throw shade at each other online and can't talk civilly about anything. How our politicians can't seem to work with anybody who they disagree and can't get anything done. It's, and it's not just there. The polarization is affecting our relationships, our friendships, our family relationships are fragmenting because of the same type of polarization going on in our nation. I gotta be honest, when I think about it, I often end up in this place of thinking, well, what can be done? I mean, the problem is bigger than we are, it seems. It's, it seems impossible to solve. So instead of staying in that place of what can be done, this series is our attempt to look at how the Bible leads us to active and practical solutions to the problem. Because where's love is not a new question. We see it all throughout history. We see it in popular music. How many of you remember this popular song? How many remember it? Come on, anybody? Yeah? Not just old people remember it? No, no, you never heard it. You never heard it. It's this smooth, flowing melody that just kind of draws you into a song that's all about cheating on the one you love. It's a cheating song. It says, I thought you were going to leave the other person because you said you loved me. Or how many of you remember this one? This is just a little bit newer. Yeah? Yeah, now that's the song for this series, right? 
a prayer to whatever, I don't know who, what God they're praying to, but whatever God they're praying to for something that changed from what was the mess of 2003. But you know, that's so long ago. It's so much better now. I mean, back then, social media wasn't a big thing. I mean, MySpace didn't come out for a few months after this song released, and Facebook and Twitter were several years later, and social media has done what it said it would do, make all of us come together in a better way, right? We are so politically, economically, racially charged and divided today that the president and politicians' Twitter fight with celebrities and now not only are politicians fighting with the other party, but they're calling members of their own party Russian agents. And members of the same party are taking out secret Twitter accounts to fight members of their own party. We have a committee chair who writes his own dramatic script and presents it as though he were reading a, a transcript of a phone call as evidence. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop with politics. It happens in relationships too, doesn't it? We regularly see someone post something and we go, wow, they thought they loved them, but I guess they don't on Facebook, right? And it sadly happens among people who call themselves Christians as well, like this last week with what John MacArthur did when he attacked other Christians who don't agree with his interpretation of the biblical role of women, and in particular, he and those with him attacked Beth Moore in such belittling and Twitter-esque fashion. It's sad, isn't it? how a, a vocal, wonderful theologian who has so many good things to say can so regularly be unable to disagree with grace. All of it is enough to make your blood boil, isn't it, at times? Which begs the question, where is the love? Why is it so hard to love one another? We see the same polarization and hate in Jesus' time. I mean, there were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Samaritans, and the Essenes. The Sadducees were the liberal progressive party of the day. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Remember that one? That's how you remember them? Their theology? Many Samaritans were actually the ultra-liberal progressives who had no time for traditional uh, religion or values and were about the sexual revolution. The, the Pharisees were the mainstream conservatives who had strong biblical beliefs about morality and believed in life after death. And the Essenes, well, they were the ultra-conservative segment of homeschoolers who went and lived in a cave where no one would bother them and no one could corrupt their children or threaten their lifestyle. In that context, the smart lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question. In Luke 10, and it reads this, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That sounds like a good, reasonable, simple question. What do I, what do I need to do, Jesus? But the backdrop of that question is polarized po po politics and religious views of the day. This religious lawyer asking Jesus the question is likely, from what we know about him, one of the more conservative ones. He's probably wearing something called phylacteries. Those phylacteries that they wore were actually small leather boxes that they hung on their clothes that contained the most important written scriptures of their faith. It's kind of like pre-iPhone day, how they carry scriptures around, right? Kind of like uh, putting a scripture on your home screen or some of your smartphone or your home computer. And Jesus' response is what is written in the law. How do you read it? In other words, what do you think the answer to that question is? That really important question. And the lawyer answers with what surely would have been one of those scriptures in one of those little boxes he's carrying on his clothing. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus says, well done, great answer. Do this and you will live. But the guy's a lawyer. So he needs to parse that out a little bit and justify himself because he certainly knows he's not doing, living up to all of this and he certainly knows for sure he's not living up to the loving your neighbor kind of thing like Jesus is talking about because this guy has a Twitter following and he's used to lambasting his people and that's what makes the people follow him and makes, makes, making his enemies look like idiots, right? See, I think there's a little bit of that lawyer in all of us. I think we all live too much of our life trying to justify our own positions by at times also making people who disagree with us look stupid at times, right? But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Is it the guy who lives next to me? I don't really like him that much. He drinks too much. He isn't nice to his kid. He likes to borrow my tools, and then he brings them back dirty and damaged. Is the guy who plays the music loud at night in his, in his garage? Who is my neighbor? Jesus, let's parse that one out just a little bit. What does that mean? So Jesus tells the famous Good Samaritan story. Jesus could have picked anyone in this story. He made the story up. He could have picked anyone as the hero of the story, but who does he pick? Jesus picks the ultra-liberal, apostate, sexual revolution, moral reprobate, pagan Samaritan as the one who is the hero of the story. Jesus is intentionally creating this really awkward political and religious situation in his story to communicate to us that love supersedes it all. Let's read part of the story. It says, Jesus replied, said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him for half dead. I don't know what he did wrong. Maybe the guy was a Trump supporter. I don't know. That was supposed to be a joke. Thank you. Jesus goes on in the story to show how a priest and a Levite who had likely given many speeches on social justice and compassion for the needy walk right on by and do nothing. Remind you of anyone? giving speeches on social justice and sound bites daily and lots of media attention and getting paid a lot and they do nothing. If anyone ever here thinks the Bible isn't relatable, you haven't read the Bible. Jesus then tells about how Samaritan, the evil, hated one, the one who threatens our cultural way of life and morality, had compassion. This man stopped. He cleaned his wounds. He bandaged him. He, he took him to the hotel. He paid in advance for the lodging and the room service and the nursing aid to come in and pay attention for the next two weeks. And then he went on and finished his business trip. And he told the hotel manager as he was leaving, whatever he needs, I will return to you. And if it goes beyond what I've already paid you, I will pay you for whatever needs to happen. Take well, good care of him. And Jesus is saying to this self-justifying lawyer and to us, where's the love? There's love. Go and be like that. Who in your life can you not stand? Who in your life feels like a threat to you, like a constant pain in the rear end to you? Who in your life feels like a threat to you and represents everything you think is wrong in this world? The person who, when you get together, you know you aren't going to agree on much of anything. See, Jesus flips the whole concept of being a follower of God and of love on its head in this famous story, The Good Samaritan. Jesus takes what is often for us an abstract feeling and concept of love, and he puts flesh and bones on it, ending in the fairy tale of love and pointing us to something so powerful that it can change our friendships, it can change your marriage, it can change your relationships with your ex, it can change your relationships at work, your strained relationships in your family, and it can indeed change our nation. In fact, this kind 
of love is the only hope our nation has of seeing the divides healed. G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest Christian writers and philosophers of the, last, of the modern era, once said, we make our friends and we make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor. Sometimes we think that's a cruel joke. It's so true, isn't it? You won't find love by being the Essene who shelters and protects from the bad influences around you. Jesus says, learn to love everyone right where you are at. You are not in your neighborhood. You are not in your workspace at work. You are not on the team where all your kids have all their friends on by accident. Love those who are difficult and not easily lovable in practical ways. See, the problem in life is that we don't get to choose our neighbors. And for some, an even greater problem is you don't get to choose your family. How many of you in here, if you had a choice, how many of you would have picked a different family? Don't, don't, don't raise your hands, just maybe... Maybe blink or wink or raise a finger so you can acknowledge that that's you. Your family is your first neighborhood and your first neighbors. Jesus calls us to love our families, and that isn't guaranteed to be easy. I mean, how do you love a family member who has abused you, maybe done you such great harm? You need to have boundaries. But what, what does love look like? For some of you, that is the really legit hard question you are wrestling with in your life. And then there's church. They're your neighbors too. And I've heard many people over the years, honestly, I've been one of them at times, complain about how the church has hurt you. And we use that hurt as an excuse to not be in church or to not follow God. But the reality is, betrayal and hurt can happen and does happen in friendships both inside the church and outside the church. With the high value the Bible places on healthy relationship, hopefully you will experience it less inside the church. And I, am, I really believe that you will experience it less here at Quest because I am so proud of how every one of you who is here works so hard to love people even across differences, which is one of our big values. But if you want to use past hurt from friendships within the church as an excuse for not being a part of the church, then at least be fair and use that excuse to not involve yourself in any friendships because it happens everywhere. And if that's the way you live life, then it'll be sad. You'll be lonely. For those of you who have been hurt, I'm really sorry that you have been. You are welcome here we want you to experience positive relationships. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we are called to love through difficulties, not abandon faith or church and walk away with excuses for not loving or not being a follower of Jesus. See, blaming and excuse making is what the priest and the Levite were doing in Jesus' story when they saw and passed by the guy beaten on the side of the road. They had to be thinking one or maybe all of the following types of things. They probably were thinking, oh, he probably deserved it. They might have been thinking, the problem is too big for me. Or they might have been thinking, maybe the robbers are still around and as much as compassion dictates that I should help, wisdom says it's too dangerous. They may have been thinking, I can't solve everything. Taking care of myself is the most important thing to do if I'm going to have long-term impact in life. Whatever their excuse was, they walked on by. See, as great as this church is, and it is a great community who cares deeply for one another, 
The truth is you will meet some people here at Quest who you click with and fit just right with, and others will unknowingly grate on you and make you feel uncomfortable. But it doesn't matter. You are all welcome here. And I will always challenge myself and challenge you to love like Jesus because that's what people who are pursuing Jesus do. They love like Him. See, spectators of Jesus when it's difficult or when their feelings get hurt, they tend to leave with excuses. Followers of Jesus stay and learn to love deeply. I remember working uh, a number of years ago with a church planter in Hollywood. She had a church at the time I met her, about 20 people, and most had been rescued from human trafficking. Uh, when I found out about her from others, they all described her as plum crazy. Uh, her sense of reality, as I got to know her, was rather disconnected. Her thoughts randomly bounced like lightning between one topic and another and back, and it was really, really just hard to have a conversation with her. She came to me for help after she'd been at it for a couple of years. I honestly would have never approved her for church planning. She is so difficult to have a conversation with. But man, did she love well. After I got past the difficulty of how hard it was to have a focused conversation and past the expectations that I felt that I was supposed to somehow as a coach turn her into something that she would probably never be, a really, really healthy larger church or healthy growing church, I got to look at her with different eyes and see what an amazing ministry was taking place through her life. The people who didn't know Jesus, people who had no hope in desperate situations, were rescued through her efforts and introduced to Jesus, and almost all of them ended up landing in another church because she wasn't healthy enough to keep them in her church. She helped them, helped me learn a lesson of love and grace, that God is so awesome. It doesn't matter how crazy or dysfunctional you or I are. If we love Him and we try to love others like Jesus, putting Him first in our life, there's always someone more crazy or dysfunctional than you or me. Who God is going to use you to reach and help their lives be redeemed and increasingly grow into something beautiful and more like Jesus created them to be. I mean, most of the time I didn't want to work with her. At times I was really frustrated that my job required me to do some work with her. And the same might be true of you in certain circumstances. You, you might be in a small group. You might be at work and love with all the people around you and love everyone that's there. And then someone else comes in and sits next to you and that you would not gleefully ever want to be spending time with. And the Good Samaritan challenges that feeling in us. The Good Samaritan confronts in us that feeling of wanting to leave, to ignore, to not stop and love that person. It asks us the tough question of whether we are like the two characters in Jesus' story who are religious hypocrites. Are we having fun yet? I mean, that's the reality of the story, right? Living like the Good Samaritan is the core answer to where's the love? Throughout the rest of the series, we're going to be talking about different topics that give us practical, actionable ways we can live this out. But today we're going to take a look at three questions that I think we can ask ourselves in any situation we will ever face that will lead us to walking in this kind of love. The first one is, does this person that I'm having a difficult time with right now bear the image of God? Now, this is a bit of a trick question. I'll just be honest up front, right? I think most of us, 
when we face a really difficult person to love, like the Samaritan type of person who is so far removed from our own morality, our own comfort zone, our own personality and social norms, we tend to answer that question saying, no, that person is clearly not living according to the image of God. But you see, that's not the question. That's a different question. The question is not, are they reflecting the image of God or acting in accordance with the image of God? The question is, do they bear the image of God? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Every human being in the world is created in the image of God, even if that image is scarred and marred and damaged beyond recognition. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, when you love them, no matter how sinful or broken, you are actually loving God who has made them in his image. See, every moral law and commandment you can find in the Bible is based on this one rhetorical question. Do they bear the image of God? And the answer is yes. So we love them and we treat them like they, like they do bear the image of God, whether they're reflecting that or not in their lives. See, this is where our culture has such a disconnect from a biblical worldview, and as a result, our culture fights against reality. Our culture likes to put deer and spotted owls and dolphins and puppies, as cute as they are, on the same level as humans. But in a Christian worldview, in reality, that is not true. Only human beings are created in the image of God. When we lose that foundation for how we see people and morality, we end up devaluing human life and human beings, and which then leads to the crazy polarization and communication and relationships that we see in our world today. Because humanity is made in God's image, that's the reason the Bible is so strong and strict around murder. You attack and you kill a person. You are attacking and defaming God. You are killing the image of God. Being made in the image of God is why God commands us to not slander or gossip or spread falsehood about someone else because in so doing, we are defaming God's image in them and defaming God himself. Proverbs 18 says it this way. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, you sow death with your tongue, you will reap death. You sow life with your tongue, you will reap life with your tongue. James chapter 3, Jesus' half-brother writes and takes it further. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. See, for some of you, you can probably think back to things you said, that if you had just controlled your tongue a little better, you wouldn't have slept on the couch for two weeks. You might be still married. Your kids might respect you and love you more. Your parents might respect you and love you more. You might still have a job. You might still have a friendship. Words seem small. But oh, what a raging inferno they can create. And here it is again. James goes on and says, With it we bless the Lord and our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. See, being made in the image of God also affects how we treat the poor. 
Proverbs 17 says it this way, Whoever mocks the poor insults their maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 14 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors God. See, there's been this whole one-percenter controversy in our culture, hasn't there been, in the last couple of years? When we see others as equally bearing the image of God, and we regain the honor of others and our generosity toward others as a result so that we don't take advantage of the hard work of others to enrich ourselves, that's when that problem is solved. It's a heart issue that can never be changed by politics. In an ideal world, if everyone's heart were right, it doesn't matter what political system we have, whether it's socialism, capitalism, dictatorship, monarchy, democracy, whatever it is, whatever system with right hearts can work. But our hearts aren't right, are they? And socialism will not solve the greed of our culture. I mean, look honestly at history and around the world today. You'll see every socialist country in the world today has oligarchs who are filthy rich on the backs of the poor. And socialist countries in general in our world are poorer than America is. And I would suggest in an imperfect world that socialism is more dangerous than capitalism and democracy because it involves more government control. And in almost every place in history in our world today, that kind of government control moves toward repression of religious freedom and freedom of speech. See, the only solution for economic imbalance and greed in America is a heart change. We were created in the image of God. But sin damaged that image in us, leaving our hearts and our desires about what we want, about what is enough, about identity, all confused, all messed up. And Jesus came to save us and restore that image back to its original beauty and strength. In Christian theology, that process of restoring back to the image of God in us is called sanctification. It's a big word. It's a big word. So here's what it means. When we come to faith in Jesus, choosing to follow him, everything Jesus did to justify and redeem us is put in place right away. We are new creations in God's eyes. That's how he sees us. No sin is held over us any longer. We are free. But we also know that even though we're seen that way by God and treated that way by God as though we are fully restored and no longer condemned by our own sin, that our lives in reality do not yet live up to that, do they? So think of it this way. A Maserati sports car that is in a head-on accident with a semi at 90 miles an hour is going to be absolutely trashed. But God is fully capable willing and ready to restore that trashed Maserati back to its original glory. So when that Maserati, which is in this case you or I, when we choose to repent and follow Jesus, sanctification is the extensive body shop process that God takes every one of us through, where piece by piece that which is bent is made straight. That which is broken is restored or replaced with new beautiful things. And that's often a difficult and painful process, right? But it's a beautiful process that God wants to take us through. 
See, one of God, and what God guarantees to complete that process in us. He says when He returns, He will complete it, either in our death or in His Jesus coming back. He guarantees that He will complete that restoration work in us. So when you are struggling to love somebody who is irritating the crud out of you, the first question you ask to begin to align yourself with finding the answer to the question, where is the love, is does this person bear the image of God? Here's the second question when we're having a difficult time. How would I want to be treated in similar circumstances? See, this may sound like something your mother told you when you punched your sibling. I get that. And yet the truth is so simple and profound. And it simplifies our search for where is the love in whatever situation we are in. How would I want to be treated if I were in a similar circumstance? See, more than almost any question, this one helps us in making loving decisions and paving the way for us to act lovingly. If I had been mugged, if I had made a major mistake in life, if I had sinned terribly, how would I want to be treated? If I had been irresponsible and fired from my job, how would I want to be treated? If my marriage was melting down, how would I want to be treated? If I were getting old and struggling with health and the ability to function well, how would I want to be treated? If I felt like I was getting the short end of the stick and I was struggling with self-destructive coping mechanisms and all my disappointment of the injustice that's going on around me, how would I want to be treated in that moment? If I were that person who got pregnant as a teen, if I were that infant in that mother's womb, that pregnant teen's womb, how would I want to be treated? See, the primary question in all of life's circumstance, in order for us to make love the priority in our lives, is how, much, how do I want to be treated if I were in a similar circumstance? See, the question isn't, What's most convenient for me? What helps me advance the most? What's easiest? What's best? What makes me the most wealthiest? The most liked? Whatever the question, th those questions prioritize personal choice over love, not love as the primary guiding value. Jesus said it this way in the Golden Rule in Matthew 7. He said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law. And the prophets. What he's saying there is the law and the prophets were all about leading us to discovering the answer to where is the love. See, we can view God's law as restrictive, as punitive, as too strict, as picky, but the reality is the law of God leads us to living out love in our relationships, in our life. One of the most famous rabbis of all time was actually a contemporary of Jesus. His name was Hillel. Uh, now, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. They have 613 laws in them, and plus a lot of descriptions of what that law looks like. So there's this story that one day a Gentile walked up and asked Hillel to explain the entire Torah to him while he was standing on one foot. How long can you hold a yoga pose? Not very long, right? Interesting way to ask someone to be brief. Maybe I should preach on one foot, right? He'd probably like that. While standing on one foot, Hillel simply answered him, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is just explanation. Go and learn. See, life and faith are really rather simple. Simple doesn't mean it's easy, but it's clear. 
What would life, marriage, friendship, politics be like if we just lived that out? So when you find a difficult person to love, annoying, somebody who's incompetent, remember they bear the image of God. And ask yourself, if I were them, how would I want to be treated in this moment? And then ask one more question. What's the next loving thing I can do? See, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And, and through the Good Samaritan story, Jesus actually illustrates for us the importance of answering this question. You see the man beaten, the next thing to do is you stop. You see the wounds, the next thing you do is to clean them. And then the next thing to do is to bandage them. And you see the man cannot walk, so you pick him up and you put him on your donkey. You drive him to the nearest place where he can get help. And you see the man cannot pay for the help or the place to stay while he's recovering, so you do that. And you make sure that whatever you do, you don't just do it half-hearted saying, here's ten bucks and walk away, it could make me feel good because I did something today. No, you do something, you do things with meaningful, relational follow through, which is going to look different in different situations. In the story, even this time, the Samaritan was on a business trip. He had to leave to finish his business trip, but he worked intentionally to make sure that this guy was cared for and checked back to make sure the care happened and it was covered. That's what you see in the story. And then Jesus asked the lawyer the question, which of these three, now remember there are three people, priest, Levite, and Samaritan, which of these three do you think, he's asking the lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. This guy can't even say the word Samaritan. That's how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. He just says, the one. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What's the next loving, gracious, merciful thing you can do in whatever relationships you are struggling in right now? Is it your marriage? You'd be surprised how many marriages that I've seen on the verge of divorce that can be saved by simply walking out the answers to these three questions in the Jesus kind of love way. Hopeless relationships with siblings, with parents, with bosses, with co-workers, can be healed, they can be overcome in such a positive way by living out these three questions. So instead of saying, where's the love, you actually get to say, here's the love. You see, we so often get overwhelmed with how complex life and the situations are. With years of hurt and bitterness and bad stuff happening and painful patterns of behavior. Is my mom ever going to change? Is, is my spouse ever going to change? Is my boss ever going to change? Is my neighbor ever going to change? And our answer in a lot of those situations is no. Too big, too complex, I don't think it's going to happen. But see, that answer that we give focuses on predicting the future. But at the same time, it ends up leaving us stuck in a negative pattern in our today. Instead, this is inviting us to break out of that negative pattern by asking, what is the next loving thing to do? Not asking, will my marriage ever become the marriage I've dreamed of and be beautiful? When will my relationship with my boss become wonderful? Or when will my siblings and parents become the family I always dreamed of? Not asking those questions, but instead just asking, what's the next loving thing I can do. Christmas is coming, if you hadn't noticed, for the past two months in the stores. 
One of the things I love about Christmas is the lights on the tree. One of the things I hate about Christmas is the lights on the tree. It seems no matter how what mechanism or method you use to store and wrap your Christmas lights, they're always going to end up in a tangled mess. I wrap mine carefully and then I wrap the cord around it to keep them from getting together and then I put the two ends together and, and theoretically you should just be able to pick up that bunch of lights and you should be able to unplug and unwrap a couple times and go, and it's all there, right? But I'm convinced there are evil communist elves who come into all of our homes every year to tangle those cords and test our patience. So how do you get them untangled? By tugging and shaking? No, you find one end and you carefully, one loop at a time, start threading that end through the next obvious knot and gradually you free more and more of the cord until all of a sudden there's no more tangled mess and you got your lights. See, in our world today there are obvious complexities in relationships and marriage and work and friendships and political and social issues and in parenting. Often in the face of those complex difficulties, we do the same thing that this lawyer did in asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? We get focused on the practical realities of how complex our lives are and relationships are, saying, I don't have time to do this. How can I fit one more thing? Are you really asking me to love that jerk of a boss or husband or wife or friend or coworker? What's that going to do? What difference is that going to make? The problems are too big, too complex, too long-standing. Nothing is going to change. And Jesus boils all that parsing and that complexity that we go through down to just do the next loop of love today. That's all. Just do the next loving thing, whether you feel like it or not. Because certainly this lawyer didn't feel like loving his enemy, the Samaritan. He couldn't even identify him by his name. He just said, that one. And you and I may never fix all the complexities of our families' lives or, or our work life, but we can live daily doing the next loving thing. Treating people like they deserve as the ones who bear the image of God treating them like we would want to be treated if we were in the circumstances. We may never fix all the problems in our work or in the dysfunctional political culture that we live in. We can't ever fully unscramble all the eggs that have been scrambled in life and friendships and family. Some of the stuff is just going to need to fall away. But in everything, we can ask these three questions. And we can end up just doing the next loving thing. So, who do you need to see in your life as a bearer of the image of God? Who's difficult in your life to love? And if you were in those same circumstances that they are in, how would you want to be treated? And then, just go do the next loving thing today, tomorrow, the next day, and see what God can do. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, we stand before you and we celebrate who you are to us, that you are a God who does that with each and every one of us, that you love us so much in our tangled mess and our 
our damaged, corrupt lives, our weird ways of thinking, our belligerent rebellion, that you still love us so much that you come to us and you take us as we are, you forgive us and you untangle our own lives one step at a time. Lord, would you lead us into being people who experience the joy of doing that daily with other people? That maybe not today, maybe not next month, next month, maybe not next year, maybe not until next decade or a couple decades from now, but Lord, would you allow us to live like this in a way that we would see amazing tangled messes become beautiful, untangled as you design them to be. The relationships we've given up hope on, Lord, would your spirit come in and work through us being able to do just these simple three questions and doing the next thing in love. Would you give us the joy of seeing those healed? Lord, as we turn our hearts now to you to worship, would you receive our praise? And would you come and speak further to each and every one of us right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.